Tanel and Jeremy Tanel. Streaming to you recorded from Seattle, Washington. Here. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Plowline Podcast. My name is Jeremy Tunnell. Hello, everyone. This is Jerry Balarosa Tunnell, and we are so happy to be with you today. It's been a while since we've done a podcast, so this is a, a good time for us to kind of uh, reconnect and give you a little update on things that we've been doing in our life. It's been pretty exciting, um, despite COVID. Um, we kind of like learned how to navigate through this uh, space of uh, ambiguity. Yeah, I think we're still working on trying to figure out how to navigate in this space of amb- uh, ambiguity, but we've learned, yeah, we've, we've learned how to, I think the foundation for us learning how to do that stuff was kind of laid early on in our relationship. Yeah, in, in our relationship or at the beginning of this COVID? <laughs> of our relationship. You mean navigating through ambiguity? Yes, navigating through Are ambiguity. Are we just like two ambiguous people just walking through and floating through this space? More me than you, but uh, but no, more along the lines of, uh, you know, early on in, in this relationship, you know, the ambiguity of, is this thing going to go anywhere? Is this going to do anything? Are we, you know, are we going to make it? Or, you you know, ask those questions. You asked them out loud a lot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I did. Yeah. I did. Well, I mean, I mean, because we just don't know. Right. And I think I think a lot of times people want to know what is going to happen. We all do. We all want to know what's going to happen so that way we can prepare for it. And I think that's where we can get um, caught up in certain things. Right. In the um, in the binary of things. It's like a do or die. Right. Mm-hmm. It's um, it's a. Uh, if you if you don't get prepared, then things aren't going to turn out the way that you want it to. And I think it's a I think it's a lot more than that. Is that you can't prepare for everything? No, you can't prepare for everything, but you can be prepared. You know, you can you can live a. I don't I don't know that this is necessarily true because it hasn't been tested um, on any great scale for us. Um, outside of our own relationship? I think what we do is we do our best every single day. Yeah. That's what we do. And we have to take accountability for ourselves and our actions. And every day, that should be that should be a goal, that every day we will be the best selves that we can be. And if being our best selves means um, staying in bed all night because, or staying in bed all day because you're tired, then that's great, right? Sure. I mean, not do it every single day. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also think that, you know, where I was going was uh, that I think there are things you can prepare for. And I think that we do we do think about and live a life of trying to at least be prepared for, um, you know, for scenarios that might be more difficult than the scenario we find ourselves in now. For example? Um, well, if we had a hard time feeding ourselves and our family. Oh, right. We learned how to garden, right? Yep. If we, um, if we needed to, um, if, if we needed to find, uh, alternative ways of transportation, which we've had to do that, right? You know, we've been a single car family where one of us biked to work every day. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you know, where both of us biked to work on occasion because we couldn't afford the gas. Right. 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 Yeah. You know, and, um, you know, I think, I think we do, we, we don't live big, you know, we have a small house, um, which is a real blessing and we have, uh, we have good neighbors and good friends, which is a blessing. And we have, um, we have a great family, which is a blessing. And we have an abundance in our life because of those things. And if there's an abundance beyond those things, you know, material abundance, then I think it behooves us to work to try and protect those things, you know, to ensure that those things can be sustained. Food, shelter, you know, making sure that, that, that to the best of our ability that we can, we can protect um, the ones we love. Yeah, I think that brings up a lot of things. I mean, <clears throat> you know, anyone listening to this podcast would, you know, I mean, I don't know what everyone would say, but I know just just by what you what you just stated that we would have to do what we need to do to protect what we have, and you know, to be able to ensure that we have this abundance. That definitely comes from a place of privilege and the ability to to make those things happen just being able to be on this podcast and to be able to share our voice is is a privilege to do and you know i mean i think um you know when when we talk about you know preparedness and and you know ensuring that we can we can feed ourselves we can we can create right that's one of the things is that we can create we can we can bring forth um things that you know it, you know if we if we lost and i think i think um i believe that's what you were trying to you were trying to get at in regards to gardening right when the covid when covid hit and we kind of like looked at it and was thinking about the systemics you know the systemic failure that would that would cause a demise in our food source right we decided to reach back into um different ways of of feeding ourselves and you know even thinking outside of ourselves and thinking of our neighbors and our friends and how do we how do we sustain ourselves i mean we definitely don't have a a big garden to where we can sustain tons of people but if everyone did what we did and did a garden and and cared for it and understood how to how to care for the garden itself yeah then we'd be able to care for one another right yeah Yeah, independently if need be yeah right absolutely absolutely yeah that's that's um that's what i was getting at yep i mean and then it's like if we because i feel that you know that's just one part right having the garden you know creating gardening is is one part of the bigger system we can either, we can go either way we can either go deeper into the garden and how the garden was created and the design that was put behind the garden we can go that way we can also go the other way on how much of you know um how much of an abundance are we going to have? You know, what is the fruits of our labor? What are we going to be able to provide? And right now it's like, we've got tons of lettuce. We'll have tons of corn. We'll have tons of onions and beets and potatoes. And, you know, I mean, 
And then also, um, I think I think there's also within creating a garden, we also have um, lessons learned from creating a garden, right? Mm-hmm. It's like watching the weather, right? It's like we've been complaining so much about our tomatoes not not growing because it's been so cold. And so it's like, okay, well, what is going to grow? Well, peas are going to grow. Let's grow peas, right? Yeah, and the beans and the peas grew like gangbusters. Right, it did. But then it got really hot, and so our um, broccoli and our cauliflower, you know, they bolted before we, they, it could produce anything. And so it's like it's it's really understanding the weather. And that I think that brings us into a different part of the system as well, too, that we are all connected. And when we talk about this interconnectivity and and this a relationship that we have with nature and with each other, we forget about the fact that we need to know exactly what is happening around our environment. What is the environment that we're creating, mm-hmm. right? I mean, and that could be a singular subject on how are we creating a garden so that way to produce, um, you know, the best yield in a garden. Or what are we putting into our life? We could we could utilize the garden as a metaphor for our life. And what are we planning? What do we want to grow? What is it that we need to remove? How do we care for it? What design do we have? Yeah, and that so, garden metaphor has been a metaphor that you and I have used for years. Years. In our relationship and yes. in, uh, yes. in our lives. And even before we were growing a garden. I, you know, <laughs> yeah. like before we were growing a garden, you started using that garden analogy. And so we started playing off of that. And right. that was the inspiration for growing a garden. Well, like, our, yeah, the first time that I did that was in, in, in Bellingham. Bellingham. Yeah, yeah, when you and John built me that the raised beds right and yeah and you know i mean also the the connection to you know the the soil when i work in a garden right i mean it's like there's there's i feel that there's a relief of a release of stress when i'm in the garden and it's because i feel that i mean people are going to think it's crazy but i do feel that when i'm in the garden Every single plant that I touch is a vibration, right? I can feel the vibration of the plant. And I don't know. I think it's great. (laughs) There's nothing crazy about that. That's, you know, not only is that indigenous teaching, but that's also that's also science. That's, you know, the the idea. um, Yeah, the um, like. Tesla said, if you want to understand the universe, then get, you know, then come to understand frequency and vibration, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, and numerous other physicists and scientists have, have come to the, that conclusion that, you know, that on the, that on the atomic level, on the, on the quantum level, in fact, we are these particles that are bound together through vibration, uh, through frequency and, um, and that's what that's what holds that's what holds us together uh and and that it's not the it's not the material that is um in that is it's not the material world that is that is shaping or or creating the space it's the space in which the material world is emerging from it's coming from it um and uh that's science that's that's basic physics. We you know we understand that now. Uh, we can mathematically show it. We can um, we can even look at 
um, atoms in a microscope now. Right. So, you know, so it, it, it is incredible uh, to, to, to know that those ideas that you're saying right there, those ideas are true. You can probably feel the vibration of those plants. You know, if you, uh, this idea that humans are this big, dumb, um, you know, five senses creature, and that's the only way they move and operate through the world. I taste and smell. That's so stupid. You know, like we are, we are more than that. We, we, we are electromagnetic creatures um, sending off massive electromagnetic signals and receiving those signals as well. And who knows? We might even be able to take in other signals. The only reason why we know so much about the electromagnetic spectrum is because we've mastered it. Light bulbs, um, you know, car engines. That's electromagnetic energy. But what and about even, gravity? Right. And even when we even when we when we talk about that, you know, on such a grand scale, we also forget about the fact that we are we are the youngest creatures on this planet. Yes. Right. We are the youngest creatures on this planet. We are babies. And I think I think that is the reason why that because we're we're these um, these young creatures, we haven't learned how to be in relationship with right. everything else that makes us so grand. Right. That makes this universe so great is because we don't know how to be in a relationship. But I do believe that our ancestors knew how to be in relationship in order for them to survive. And so I do feel that there is this um, genetic and this ancestral knowledge that every single one of us hold. We just don't know how to tap into it yet. And so, you know, I mean, I'm hoping, I'm, you know, I'm hoping that I can, I can join the the ranks of you know um you know other indigenous scholars and leaders out there in the world where you know i'm able to um teach and share on my indigenous knowledge you already that I've are gathered. you already are you already are part of those ranks well you know i mean it's like i want to be like sherry mitchell right from uh, sacred uh, instructions <laughs> and i think that's awesome and i think that i you know i think you're you know, you're one, you're one talk away from being Sherry Mitchell. You know, I mean, Sherry, Sherry Mitchell is probably a, um, like all these heroes that we gather, right? They're, they're, they're down to earth people. They're right, real people. Right. And Sherry Mitchell actually wrote the book Sacred Instructions, um, Indigenous Wisdom for Living Spirit Based Change. And, um, yeah, listening to, listening to her talk today on, indigenous wisdom and healing right that cis went ahead and put on yeah we spent uh an hour and a half this afternoon this morning uh listening to sherry mitchell um, be interviewed that can be found on our facebook page it's uh, facebook.com backslash plowline and you'll find the post there that has that talk it's been recorded so you can watch it it is worth your listen yeah, I mean, it's like um, listening to her, a lot of the words, right? It's like, I feel like, oh my gosh, that's my spirit animal. <laughs> like, I think, we, I think we have the same spirit just by the things that she's saying, because there was one point where she was talking about the space in between, mm. the space in between these vibrations. And I feel that is where, that is where growth lies. That is where the, the biggest change lies. It's like the space in between the notes, right? It's like um, a lot of times we hear these vibrations, but it's the space in between the notes that makes the music. Right. And it's the same thing with, you know, on how we care for, how we care for ourselves, how we care for our garden, how we care for each other, is that sometimes I feel 
people want to fill that void. They want to feel fill that place where there is that space. And sometimes I feel when we fill that void with things that shouldn't be there, we can find ourselves spiraling into, um, you know, I don't know, different kinds of behaviors or thoughts or, you know, however it is, right? I mean, we can see it in the way that we interact with each other. It's like if I, you know, if, if I said something and people didn't hear the whole entire, th- you know, speech that I said and they just picked one small point of that, without inquiry, without inquiring about what happened in between that empty space, people have the tendency to add in their own stories and their own thoughts. And it could completely change the entire um, context of what I was saying. And, you know, I mean, I think that's where we can be very it, it can it can get dangerous, right? Sure. I, I going and back also to, become becoming like um, codependent as yeah, well. Yeah, it can absolutely. And going back to your idea about the the space between the notes, that's um, that is where you know, right? That's the space defining the the material, right? The right. note being the material, the space being the space. Um, otherwise, you know, music would just sound like a you know like a like a, a stream of musical notes with no breaks in between right um it's the space that defines it yep exactly yeah um let's talk a little bit about uh the authors you're reading this summer so um just briefly if you could go through um and these are only (laughs) the books that you're actively reading okay because we both have this thing where um where we 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 don't read we read more than one book at a time Yes, and it and it yeah. takes us a while to get through a book, but um, but um, you know we 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 have a tendency to move through different books. Well, and I think it takes a while to. I mean, f- and just speaking for myself, it takes a while for me to get through books because I I have the tendency to put myself within the stories, mm-hmm. right? And it's like um, so for for example, I'm reading for the second time Sacred Instructions um, by Sherry Mitchell. And even though I've read this before, going through it again, I'm I'm seeing um, places on where I could add into my dissertation. There's there's places where I feel like, oh, I could go a little bit deeper and understanding how is this applying to my life? Um, how am I looking at things? How am I looking at systems? How am I influencing systems? Right. And so it's like a, that's 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 why I feel it, it takes a while for me to get through it. And I highlight and I mark up my books. Yeah, like your you books would. are always marked up. Always. <laughs> it is because I am in the story. And so I'm reading um, Sherry Mitchell and then I'm, I'm also working through um, Becoming by mm. uh, Michelle Obama. Which is a great, I, th- I think it's a great book, but because it's more of um, her biography, and it's it's not it's not so um, academic or steeped in indigenous knowledge. Right. It's taking me a long time, you know, to to read it. Because those are the kind of books you've been reading. These are for a yeah, while. exactly, and I enjoy them. Yeah. Right. I read. I enjoy learning. I enjoy. Um, understanding and going deeper into indigenous epistemologies. And I think that's why it's like, I'm like, I'm always finding myself gravitating towards that book. And then, of course, um, you know, the book that it has been on my desk and have been picked up and 
dusted off and read and reread is the uh, completing your qualitative dissertation, a roadmap from beginning to end. <laughs> and so that's kind of what that's kind of what I have going on. And I'm hoping that I'm, I'm hoping that I'm, I'm able to get to the point where I can enjoy just leisure reading again. Yeah. Yeah. I, well, I don't know. I don't know if I'll you, ever you, get to that are, point. Yeah. I mean, leisure reading is reading what you enjoy. What you enjoy. You, right. So. Right. It, yeah. I mean, some people like reading engineering manuscripts. <laughs> I do. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And some people like to, you know, they enjoy trash magazines or romance novels right. and everything like that. Yeah. And, and it's funny because I used to read a lot of romance novels. Well, they're easy to read, right? But now it's like I think I think I tried to do it. I was at um, um, I forgot what bookstore I was at, but I was like, you know what? I think I'm just gonna you know relax my brain and just read this. And I I read a couple pages of some romance novel. I was like, oh my god, I can't do this. <laughs> well, I remember when when Fifty Shades was being passed around, and and somebody gave you a copy of it. Yeah, and you read. I think you probably read about three chapters, and, and I was and like, like, "Done." I'm like, "This like, is so no." <laughs> and the other one too, I tried to do was Twilight. Oh God! Yeah, I tried to do Twilight. I think I, I think I, I mean, gave oh, those books oh, away. Oh God! If you, if you love them, right? That's amazing. <laughs> no, that's good. And you know, to each his own, right? Right. I mean, yeah, to each his own. By, by, by all means, I have books that I like. I like, you know, I have books that kinds of books that I don't like. Right. Um. To my summer reading, I've got four books that I've um, that I've cracked, so I'll count them. Um, uh, the first one I'm loving is Jack Kerouac, The Dharma Bums, and um, I'm, I don't think I've ever read it. I, it wasn't on my shelf, so that means that I probably didn't read it in college. So I bought it, and um, it's awesome. If you haven't read Kerouac, um, please do. He's he's amazing. The second one I'm reading is uh, Propaganda by Edward Bernays. This was, I think, it was uh, published in the early 20th century, 19, I don't know, 1920, 1928. And this became the handbook for marketing through the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, even into the 70s. It began to fall out of vogue, um, but that's because it is much more about how to message and what messaging does and how um, and how um, to influence a society, which is what it's about. It's about influencing society. I graduated college with a writing degree, and um, I got a, a marketing um, minor and I used that marketing minor for the first part of my career life. My first job was at a design house in Whatcom County, small little design house, marketing house, um, ran by, um, by a man named Garrett Byman. And Garrett was an extremely wise, uh, mountain man, um, is what he was. And, uh, I learned a lot from him. His first lesson to me, uh, my first day of work was marketing is the ability and the tools to influence people. That's what he told me. And that comes right out of that book, Propaganda. And that's what it is. It's about influencing society. So it's worth reading. Influencing, a.k.a. manipulate. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and in fact, the, the first chapter goes, uh, Bernays says, basically, um, 
a civilized a modern civilization that is that is not being directed um through the power of propaganda uh is a dying civilization that uh that there are these pillars of civilization government religion um and and these pillars law and these pillars of civilization move society in specific ways but the attitude and the um and the perception and perspective of society um can be swayed easily now and this was 1928 easily now through mass media and their form of mass media was two things one radio and two print and those two things, and that print could be papers or books, because mm-hmm. books would have been massively distributed right, and read much right. more than today. So the point being that that was the first time in society in which in which you could steer society quickly because information moved quickly, right? Right. I could listen to a, a radio broadcast that you were listening to on the East Coast while I'm on the West Coast, and um, and we could be pretty much listening to it at the same time. Mm-hmm. Well, and now if you compound that with all of the different um, media platforms that we have right now, we are inundated, yeah, inundated with information that, you know, there's no space in between the notes. Right. There's there is no, no space, space in, in between, between the notes. notes. Yes. Yes. And I think, you know, to um, I'm going to I'm going to come back around. I'm going to leave. Um, Bernays for a moment and and come back around to one of your points earlier about remaining in the void and how it's so uncomfortable for people to remain in the void that we work very hard in the social system in the society um, to try and distract ourselves but the problem is is that all that distraction does is make the void feel darker and deeper and if we could find our way to sit in the void, we would realize that the void is not empty. The void is full of information. And that information can be shared with you if you can quiet your mind first. So um, I'm going to circle back to, to that idea because uh, I think that's kind of, well, kind of a running theme of where we're going. But the next book that I'm reading is Homo Deus. And this is from the gentleman that wrote Homo Sapiens, um, and or no, just Sapiens. It's called Sapiens. But this is Homo Deus, a brief history of tomorrow. I've read the first three chapters this past week um, while we were on over on Lopez Island. And um, who's the author? It's I'm gonna I'm not gonna do what Yaval Noah Harari. I think I actually may have gotten that right. Um, the book is basically about the evolution of humanity and the idea that we we can evolve and will evolve into um, a form of metahuman, specifically revolving around the concept of eternal life that we will be able to uh, we will be able to solve the 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 equa- the problem of death. Period. Pro- solve the problem of death. Right. As if death is a problem? Right. I mean, let me play, let me play the <laughs> other side of this because I'm the one reading this book. That's right. Death is a problem, Jerry. <laughs> but it's a natural process of... Natural nothing. <laughs> Tell, say more. Say, say more on that. Say the, more on how death is a problem. Disease and death is just a simple 
a simple problem that we can solve. And we have solved all kinds of other problems. We've solved massive war. Because in the first part of the 21st century, we've seen far less death than we saw in the first part of the 20th century. That seems a little short-sighted to me. But hey, no, I don't. So want is to. it saying is it saying that um, solving the problem of death, meaning that we're going to live like an eternal life here right. on? That's so narcissistic. Yes, it is. Now I, I am not. I, I'm not sure that that um, that. The author is arguing for it. I think he might just be reporting on it. Uh, he doesn't introduce the book that way, but I have a feeling he might go down that road. Hmm. Uh, he might just be a flat-out fan of the idea, and I don't know. I, I guess there, there's a lot of people out there who would be listening to this that may well be like, yeah, that's actually something we should solve. We should figure out how to eliminate disease, and we should figure out how to eliminate death, and we should figure out how to eliminate suffering. Wow. I think there are people. I know there are people out there that yeah. believe that. Interesting. And, and I can understand from a physical standpoint, mm-hmm. if, I, if I was rooted in, in this existence, if I was rooted in, well, this is it. Right. This is it. If I was rooted in that, then then yeah, you bet you would want to figure out how to sustain this as long as possible because after this, it's lights out. Yeah, um, I don't know. You you should you should do a report back on what I will. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, what else you got? Last book. Um, I have the physical book, but I've been doing this one on Audible. Um, I I listen to this while I um, as I go for bike rides. Um, I've been, I've wanted to read Joseph Campbell for a long time. So, uh, the hero with a thousand faces, boom, this book is incredible. Uh, Joseph Campbell is an amazing thinker. Uh, he has put together, are you related to him? I, oh, I didn't think about that. Yes, I would be. (laughs) He is a member of the Campbell clan as am I. Um, he he has put together a weaving narrative of the mythologies of humankind and found the threads that connect the heroes and the villains alike through time and utilizes that those individual mythologies combined together into a into a quilt of storytelling that will connect your ancestors with mine. Wow. Wow. Hey, you should do a, a book report back on, you know, just because you do a good job at that. Thank you. I appreciate it. That's nice of you to say publicly. <laughs> like- it's, it's true, though. It's true. You know, I mean, you're, you're a very well-read person. I appreciate that. I, I think that you and I read differently. I think that... that you read good. <laughs> no, no, you read good. You read real good. You know, like uh, you, you, you consume a book. I do. Like, wow. 
because I'm I not am, sure I quite got that. I'm going to have to read it again. Like you I consume, embody it. You embody a book. Yeah, I embody a book. You embody a book, and you do it. You like I admire the way you you read a book. Um, I um, I process books. Yeah, I process books, and um, I was thinking about this earlier today, and. I let those things connect, right? I try and I find I try and find the the connection points, um, you know, with ideas that I might have read t- two decades ago, you know, and um, and that weaves its own tapestry. I admire what Joseph Campbell wrote here. This is, oh man, what a wealth of knowledge! What a wealth! It's worth a it's worth a read. Um, um, if I were to read this book, I, I, I would have a hard time. So, um, frankly, we're not sponsored by Audible yet, <laughs> but uh, um, it, it makes some some books. It just makes things easier, right? Right. Um, and I like having the hard copy because after my bike rides, what I do is I come home and I, if there's something that I remember piqued my interest, I'll go back into the chapters that I read, and that's when I mark right, like. I mark if I didn't actually crack this book. So I'll go back in and I'll crack the book. And I like it. being able to listen to Audible and kind of like a read-along. I like doing that too. Yeah, I thought about that. I've never done anything like that, but I think that would be, I think that would be a lot of fun. Our dog is barking. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure why. Amazon. Maybe. If it was Amazon, she'd be freaking out. She would. She would like try to break through the door right she, now. I don't know why she doesn't like mailmen and delivery people. <laughs> she, well, I, I think it's I think it's because, you know, as they encroach on her property, right? Every single I mean, most of the delivery people that come to our door know we have a dog. So when they come in, they pretty much come in to try to be stealth and they sneak up. And when she sees that, she's like, You're encroaching on my property. They sneak up because she's charged them all the way to the end of the driveway on more than one occasion. I, I, she'd never bite one of them. Right. Um, you know, unless unless our grandson was here. I, she then. still would not bite them. She, I've never seen her bite and, and she wouldn't bite. But she but she would intimidate for sure. Right. Well, I think I think if anyone tried to hurt us, <laughs> she she, just just be aware. Be aware. We have a dog. That's it. We have a dog. A very lovely, friendly, she is. amazing she's awesome. personality dog. She is. She's a she's she, a awesome, awesome dog. Yeah, probably okay. one of the better ones we've ever had the pleasure of knowing. Right. So um, let's talk. Um, let's. Well, what else do you have on the list? Because I wanted to also talk about the uh, talk that we did with Step Up recently, uh, moving racial equity forward. Yeah, we can. We can talk about that. I think that was, I think it went, I think it went great. Yeah. And I know um, talking, what we did was we were part of um, Leadership Snohomish County's um, Step Up, Moving Racial Equity Forward. And we kind of uh, spoke on how to be in a relationship, um, navigating interracial relationships. Yeah. And that was really interesting coming from my point of view and from your point of view and how it's um how we need to navigate these relationships it takes it takes time sure and it takes um willingness and it takes patience 
ultimately, I think you and I both have come to the conclusion that marriage is marriage is marriage. All of them have their complications. It doesn't matter what they are. Um, right. Ours just happens to be that we're, um, we're, we're an inter-ethnicity household. Yeah, um, we are. You know, and, um, and we've found ways to navigate that by, by diving into it. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, like we haven't danced around around it. And it started on the on the level in which, you know, after 12 years of marriage, you know, 11 years of marriage, it's, uh, you know, w- really was the first time in our relationship where it started on the level where you would expect it to. Hey, I'm I'm a person of color. I'm I'm speaking for you. I'm a person of color. I'm I'm a you know, I'm I uh, I'm a person of other ethnicity than you. And um, and I think that that the fact that we don't um, we don't acknowledge that and talk about that openly in this household um, reinforces a dynamic that I don't think is healthy. And me saying, well, what is that dynamic? And you're saying, well, that dynamic is your whiteness and me saying, well, that's not very nice. (laughs) And you saying, well, then maybe you need to go think about what whiteness is and um, and. You know, and that conversation kind of going for a while to the point of 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 realizing that oh, okay, and so and we've come have, to these deeper levels. You with have it. done. I feel that you have done an incredible job at doing your own research and figuring out how to dismantle that whiteness. I mean, some of the things that you wrote on you know on your blog, which is part of your book, dismantlingwhiteness dot com, you you speak on things that could be very, very triggering for people of European descent. Yeah. Well, and honestly, I, um, I, I am, I'm to the point where I'm actually trying to, uh, I'm not, well, yeah, I am. I'm trying to trigger. Um, I, I'm not going to leave people without answers and I'm not going to, um, you know, um, I, I'm going to try and take them on a, if they'll follow, right. If they'll go along, I'll try and take them on a journey. That's got a, got it another side. Um, but it is going to be triggering because, because the very, the very beginning first rudimentary idea of the whole concept of, of dismantling whiteness is dismantling whiteness triggers people immediately. They're like, what do you mean dismantling whiteness? They feel that they're going to lose something. Certainly, right? they do. Yeah. Well, if you're going to be um, inter-ethnic in your household, why can't I celebrate my ethnicity? My ethnicity is white, and that's the problem. <laughs> and that's where we go back to Mr. Edward Bernays because of the concept of propaganda and the idea that i the idea that ideas can be seeded into a, a a society and those ideas can cement into pillars of cultural construction mm-hmm. right they uphold they uphold structures and in this particular society those structures are structures of race class wealth power mhm yep and so and so when so the so what i mean by that and bringing that back around is that and this is hard for people to hear white isn't an ethnicity it's not embedded in any sort of dna 
it's not it's not rooted in our ancient history our ancient indigeneity or where we come from as a people white and race along with it is a concept that is less than 600 years old and emerges out of the enlightenment period of europe which was a period in the 18th century 1700ish um europe where the wealth and power that was coming out of the newly conquered americas specifically central america south america and mexico and just beginning to happen in the just beginning to happen in the americas is allowed a group of people within European society to rise into an intellectual class, a new class, an intellectual class who could then reach back to their ancient texts of Plato and um, Sophocles and so on and so forth and combine those into new philosophies of enlightened ideals, which was coming into direct conflict with the practices of slavery and aggressive colonization whereby human beings were murdered converted stripped of their of their language stripped of their culture assimilated and unfortunately many of them up to 90 percent in the americas died of disease the horror of that as well as chattel slavery taking people 12 million in total by force from the African continent and pulling in then to the Americas to replace the labor force of the indigenous that were dying from disease, the horror of those acts coming into conflict with the enlightened ideals creates race. The first concepts of race come out of those moments the idea of the hierarchy of the species that was being developed for botany and biology directly influenced the concepts as well as survival of the fittest directly influenced the concepts that human beings could be brought down into another category another category below the concept of species which we are homo sapien and that category being race and that we could divide human beings up. And the lines on the map that were drawn were drawn directly around Europe. The word Caucasian comes from the word, the, the Caucasus Mountains, which divided Turkey, the Middle East, from Europe. The other words, such as Negroid, Mongoloid, and um, hey, what there's another one. Oh, Australialoid describe groups of people that are on different continents. Some of them have no relationship to, to to the other, and yet we've grouped them into these into these makeshift concepts that were designed 600 years ago, and have evolved into the words black, white, and brown that only divide us simply on. The, 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 the difference of phenotype.
mm-hmm. which is our outer appearance. <clears throat> right. And I think, um, I think, and, and, you know, I know that, <clears throat> excuse me, Leadership Snohomish County is um, going to, we'll, we'll have the link on, on our website as well too, on, on, so people can actually uh, listen in. Um, you know, tune into that presentation that we did because you go deep, you go deep into that. And I think it's really important for people to understand exactly how the construction of race has been put into place because you, we, I have seen and experienced and observed people um, trying to justify, right? Justify their positionality in in this world where you know um there's a constant well it comes from both sides right you can have you you can have this constant blaming and shaming of uh, people of european descent like you did this and all of these other kind of things and it was a europeans that constructed all of this the uh, system of hierarchy the uh, upholding of white supremacy all of these things are in place and they are in place now, with people of European descent, when we talk about dismantling whiteness and when we talk about how, um, you know, people are playing into this game of white supremacists, they can find themselves saying, I'm not racist. Right. Right. I'm not racist. Why are you saying this? And and that is where, you know, the fragility comes in and everything. But I also feel on the other side, if we are going to change the systems that are in place right now. We've got to be able to do it together. We've got to be able together. All people need to rise up and we need to do it together. But we can't do it together if we don't understand what our positionality is within this system that we call race. Yeah, you have to start there. You have to start there. You have to start with knowing what your positionality is, what your privilege is. You have to, you have to, um, you have to know exactly how you as an individual interact with those pillars of um of culture you know that we named earlier which are power um what do we say money oh, no yeah money religion politics and power and right. um and and how and how you work with that uh this goes back to and coming full circle this goes back to sacred instructions and uh, one of the things that I really appreciated about the talk, again, that talk uh, is with the author of Sacred Instructions. Sherry Mitchell. Is on our Facebook page. It's facebook.com backslash plowline. Um, it is really worth your listen. One of the things that, that I really appreciated, there were some amazing bits of sound bites of wisdom. Uh, one of the starting points for that conversation that I think it made me think of is it made me think of Eckhart Tolle and his book, a new earth. And in this book, Eckhart is trying to actually kind of expound upon Buddhist ideals in the idea of what is the nature of suffering. And, and that essentially comes back to, um, to, uh, you know, this, this element of human nature. This is how Tolle describes it on page 78. And let me grab my glasses so that I can read it. Here it becomes obvious that the human ego in its collective aspect as us against them is even more insane than me, the individual ego. 
although the mechanisms are the same. By far, the greater part of violence that humans have inflicted on each other is not the work of criminals or the mentally deranged, but of normal, respectable citizens in the service of the collective ego. One can go so far as to say that, this, that on this planet, normal equals insane. What is, what is it that lies at the root of this insanity? Complete identification with thought and emotion. That is to say, ego. I think that I think that that sums up where where we are right now in in this world. I can't help, and I said this this week when we were with the kids at the beach. I can't help but come back to that idea, and I can't help but come back to the idea that 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 we are living in a world of of collective psychosis. And that we are collectively experiencing this rise of mania. It feels like mania. It, it, it feels it feels kind of crazy. Um, things in 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 the world right now feel crazy. And I think I think that we need sacred instructions, not just the book, but those instructions that that the lessons in the book teach, in order to find our way through this yeah you know i mean it's um there's a there's one part um in the book that sherry talks about grief trauma and um, intimacy and she says here as we move through these processes of healing our grief and trauma we must have the courage to face the pain that we carry then we must be willing to sit with others and acknowledge that this pain is also in them we must also Recognize that the emotional responses that we are experiencing are normal. What we are feeling is first, second, and third generation trauma. Learning the history of that trauma, talking about it honestly, and discovering the many ways that it has impacted us all will help to release the tension that exists between us. And I think that's so important is that we, we're all hurting. Hurt people hurt people. Which is everybody. Which is everyone. And when we can acknowledge that the trauma exists within us, then we can see the trauma exist in other people. Right. When we can see the trauma existing in other people and we know the pain that we feel, we don't want to continue that pain. So we can come from a place of compassion and empathy and aloha. Yes. That's where, that's where but we need to be able to talk about it without... Without and, and allowing the triggers to come through, but asking the question, why am I so triggered? Right. What is within me that is causing this trigger to happen? And when we're able to get to that point, then we're able to sit and have conversations with one another so we can find healing together. But this is something this is something that we all gotta do. You know, we all have to do this and we've got to be able to see that pain and not not um looking across looking across the uh, the boundaries that we've created and said that person hurt us you know let's do something to that person so that way they can feel our pain as well too because you know i mean it's like when you when, when you send out those thoughts of um you know pain and anger and fear it's going to come back to you mm-hmm. as Pain, anger, and fear. What is that quote of Krishna Murti? Which one? 
the only hope for humanity. The only hope for the only hope for humankind is in the transformation of the individual. That's it. I mean, th- mm-hmm. this idea that that our leaders and our uh, you know, and our heroes are going to save us. That's insane. That right. is an insane belief. Right. The only hope for humanity is the, the only hope for, for humankind, humankind is, is the, transformation the transformation of, of the, the individual. individual. That's you. That's me. Right. Right. And, you know, that's one of the things that I talk about a lot is that if we if we want to transform the systems that we exist in, then we have to be able to willing to be transformed ourselves because no matter what we do as we dig as we uh, dig deep into um this this uh this possibility of creating a place of healing of healing together we are going to be transformed in the process we are going to be transformed in the process however we enter into the system whatever we put into it it will come back to us right so, you know, I mean, it's the same thing. It's like when we're always talking about, you know, we need to fight the uh, the war against against drugs. We need to fight this and you're we putting, need to fight you're putting, that. You're putting something into the system. You're inputting into the system. We Right. We're and what constantly you're inputting fighting. is fight, right? right. War. Yep. That's what you're putting into the system. Uh, one of the things that came up today is this concept of binary, well, this is one of the things that I took away away from it. But binary systems are illusionary systems. They are the, an extension of a mirror verse. Uh, when we find ourselves in a system that has been reduced to binary feedback loop, we are trapped in an illusion. And so, what that means is, and and that that that's that's part of the insanity of our of our world right now is this idea that. There's only two choices. You either ma- you're either the kind of person that wears a mask, or you're the kind of person that doesn't. You're either the kind of person that votes for Trump, or you're the kind of person that doesn't. You're either the kind of person that votes Democrat, or you're the kind of person that votes Republican. You're either the kind of person that, and so we're being reduced into these binary systems, which are demanding oh binary choices from us. Yeah, and that first off doesn't acknowledge the space in between the notes. Right, that's the first thing. Right. Right. That that there's always a third third option, and that option is within the void. It can be found in the void. And secondly, there are an infinite amount of choices ahead of us. It just depends on what we choose individually, i.e., collectively, mm-hmm. in order to project into it. Well, that's science fiction. No, it's not. Right. You want to go to space? You want to go to Mars? Great. Let's do it. You want to live in in a Star Trek universe? No problem. Let's do it. We could do it. We could do it together. Well, that's science fiction. No, it's not. And if you can't stop saying stuff like that, then sit down and shut up until you can process through the reality that there are infinite amount of opportunities, infinite amount of choices, infinite amount of possibilities possibilities and perspectives that that we can choose from in this reality the one that we're living in right now is the one we're choosing right yep okay wow you kind of like went off there for a minute yeah let's you okay uh, oh i'm good i'm good yeah all right let's uh let's wrap up um uh so to wrap up i want to ask a question who would you who would you like to interview Name one or two names. Sherry Mitchell. Okay. Michelle Obama. Oh, okay. Those are good ones. Those are good ones. I like that. Okay. Let's see if we can get them on the podcast. (laughs) Why not? 
And uh, I would like to um, I would like to interview Graham Hancock. Uh, if oh, you have yeah. if you haven't read Graham Hancock, oh man, you are missing out. Um, he is one of the finest researchers in the world on alternative human um, human history. And um, by alternative, I simply mean uncovering the reality of what came before this basically start line of human history, which is about 16,000 years ago. That's about where human history starts. Yep, exactly. So so, um, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram. If you want to kind of look at at, at some of the stuff that's in our garden, um, Facebook is probably one of the better places to, to go. Uh, facebook.com backslash plowline instagram is at plowline twitter is at plowline i warn you it, it twitter as you know is a dumpster fire I, I i'm not i tried i do my best to be a nice person on there but i i really don't like twitter uh you and can also to and co3 consulting uh co3 consulting.net if you want to book us for um for um, a session or a class or a keynote um, on any of the subjects that we cover, we'd be happy to do that. That can be at co3consulting.net. Or Jerry, G-E-R-R-Y at co3consulting.net or Jeremy at co3consulting.net. And one of the things that I wanted to leave with um, is something that I took away from today's talk. And that was, um, Sherry Mitchell talked about how our ancestors dreamed us into existence. And now it is our responsibility to dream for the next generation and create it create a space for that to manifest okay so collective dreaming thank you everybody thank you very much have a good day